trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us today. If you are a new listener, welcome to the ranks of the wrong thinkers. I think you're going to find plenty of courage and camaraderie here. And who knows, you may even find some useful information. I do strive to uh, give people something to think about each day. There is no implied, you know, acceptance on your part that, uh, well, if you're listening, you have to believe. But I'm going to share with you some commentaries, and I have guests that will definitely challenge the narrative that uh, a lot of folks, all of us actually, are being subjected to. But it's up to us, you and me, to sort out whether or not those things ring true. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also Pure Light, the most remarkable LED light bulbs, which actually disinfect and deodorize. You can click on the link which I provide in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com to find out more. Oh, and also HSLAmmo.com. Tip of the hat to my friend Spencer Worthington for all of his remarkable work as an ambassador for the Second Amendment. So, where to begin? Had a remarkable weekend. Uh, I'm going to tip my hat again. There we go. To uh, to everybody who I ran into in St. George, Utah, I had an opportunity to go and speak to the Liberty Action Coalition on Saturday. And uh, it, was, it was a modest-sized group. I'm guessing maybe 100 people. But if I was going to surround myself with 100 people, if, if I had to choose, who, who could you count on uh, when the chips are down? <clears throat> these are the kind of people I would want to be around. Just solid, salt-of-earth folks. It was a great experience. Got to see some friends. Got to spend a little time in my old stomping grounds. And uh, just really a, a remarkable experience. I, I may have a transcript of my remarks here within uh, the next week or so. I'll let you know. And when I have it, I'll, I'll go ahead and share it with you. But uh, we, we talked about a lot of uh, interesting issues. They had a great lineup of speakers. Um, but... It was, it was just a great experience. And, oh, one other thing I want to note. This is the show for April 12th, 2021. April 12th is a day that is etched on my memory, not uh, particularly this year, at least not yet, but seven years ago, April 12th, 2014. This is the day that that standoff took place down in Bunkerville, Nevada. I know you at least heard about it because it was big news, and it set in motion a series of events that... Um, well, challenged a lot of uh, a lot of people's notions about you know where do you stand up, how do you stand up for your rights, and uh, I'll be talking about this more in the other hour of the show today. But it was a huge, huge event, and uh, and I'm going to share some some insights from having been there myself. Um, and from having associated with Ryan Bundy for many, many years, from um, associating with Ammon Bundy over the last few years, there, there are things that uh, the media reports that many Americans do not understand. And it's, it's to our detriment that we don't understand those things. In fact, here's where we're going to start today. Um, if I were to ask you, hey, can you pinpoint the greatest threat faced by American society? 
You know, some people would probably say, well, it's the lack of inclusiveness and it's the 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 racial insensitivity and and lack of wokeness on the part of people. You know, okay, and and some people sincerely believe that. But I think Robert E. Wright, in an essay he wrote for the American Institute for Economic Research, says, no, it's the deterioration of the rule of law. Funny that I would mention something like this in the same, you know, breath that I'm saying, hey, I'm going to be talking about what happened at Bundy Ranch, you know, seven years ago. Because for a lot of Americans, they thought that was lawlessness, you know, personified. All those people out there with their guns pointing them in the direction of federal agents and defying the authority of the federal government. And I get it. That is the media narrative. That's that's what much of the mainstream media reported. But having been there myself, having been at the trial, the lawlessness that was on display was on the part of the government. And this is a place where people have a hard time making a connection Rule of law doesn't just apply to the people. It applies to the government as well. Here's the explanation from Robert E. Wright. I really like his take on this. He says, The Wire television series wasn't wildly popular when it first aired on HBO from 2002 to 2008. But it has enjoyed quite a run since due to its vivid portrayal of the human toll of Baltimore's failed public policies and institutions, including Charm City's horrific public school system, and lying local newspaper. The series formed the basis for several university courses, including one taught by Robert E. Wright. Now, some Liberty lovers, he said, were especially taken by the Hamsterdam plotline in Season 3, in which District Commander Howard Bunny Colvin secretly depenalized, in other words, crime without arrest, drug dealing, and prostitution in West Balmer. Crime plummeted to suspiciously low levels, prompting an investigation that ended Colvin's impromptu policy experiment, even though it palpably improved public health. The lesson fit with the wire's larger theme that conflicting special interests prevent the improvement of America's biggest cities. Now, Robert Wright says, interestingly, real-world Baltimore depenalized drug possession and prostitution in 2020. And just like in real-world Amsterdam and fictional Hamsterdam, Violent crime dropped a lot, especially compared to soaring violent crime rates in other big cities, including Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. Now, Baltimore remains a violent city, but presumably could reduce its murder rate by depenalizing drug dealing as well as possession, as Colvin did. The city's drug dealers often resort to violence because dealing is illegal, so the marginal cost of violence is relatively low. Think about that. You know, you steal your uh, competition stash or, you know, you put one of his uh, his guys who are out there dealing, you know, out of business. Is he going to go run to the law for a remedy? Eh, probably not. Just as likely they'd, you know, take him in. The point is, when drug dealing is legal, the marginal benefit of competing with guns decreases to the vanishing point. CVS and Walgreens, for example, compete on price and quality, not on the quantity and quality of the soldiers they employ, even though they're in the same business, selling potent chemicals as uh, Baltimore's drug lords. Now, Colvin took matters a step further than Baltimore officially has so far, assigning a few trusted officers to police open-air drug markets like Hamsterdam. That provided dealers with the physical security they needed to begin to compete on product price and quality instead of controlling corners by violent means. 
But the problem with mere depenalization was that dealers believed the regime would soon end, and it in fact did with an epic raid. While a real-life repeat seems unlikely in Baltimore anytime soon, dealers of cocaine, heroin, and other heavy-duty drugs are not yet making significant physical investments in neighborhoods like legal drugstores and pot dispensaries where they are now legal do. With less to lose than a drugstore, depenalized drug dealers will still sometimes break the peace when they think it will benefit them. Now, Robert E. Wright says, credible decriminalization, in other words, would almost certainly lead to less violent crime by bringing drug dealers under police protection and into the banking and insurance systems where their wealth can be safeguarded. That would induce some to sell out of buildings instead of the open air and give them some skin in the game that they don't want to lose by engaging in gunplay, even by proxy. Of course, the credible decriminalization of hard drugs will not come easily, as many Americans do not want it to be easy to buy chemicals like meth or heroin. But the fact is, prohibition didn't work for alcohol in the 1850s or the 1920s, and it doesn't work for drugs. If somebody doesn't want others using drugs, they need to identify and reduce the underlying causes of demand, like the physical pain allowed by our broken health care, health insurance, and food industries, and not criminalize the supply. He says convincing paternalists of the poverty of prohibition, though, is rarely easy. Experiments suggest that many people think they know what's best for others and are willing for all their supposed attachment to democratic self-government to use the coercive power of government to impose their views. Of course, in 2021, America faces a much bigger problem than drug policy. So don't get wrapped around the axle, in other words, on the fact that he's using, you know, the wire or, you know, drug prohibition to illustrate the point he's making here. The bigger problem we face is the disintegration of the rule of law. Too many restrictions on civil liberties apply to common people, but not to elites or cronies. And in the case of many infamous elites caught violating their own COVID social distancing rules, the case of Hunter Biden not facing charges after lying on a federal firearms purchase form and getting helped out by the Secret Service when his girlfriend threw his pistol into a dumpster near a school, really stands out as an egregious abuse of power. Even Politico, hardly a bastion of Republican Russian misinformation, ended up reporting on it. We're going to come back to this story in just a moment. But if you want to look at uh, the biggest problem we are facing right now, the biggest disconnect from reality, it ain't wokeness. It's the diminishment of the rule of law and particularly government's refusal to abide by the rule of law. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Robert E. Wright. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. Fantastic source of information. We need the rule of law, not lawlessness. And since there's a fair amount of lawlessness uh, starting to shape up again, I know that uh, people have been watching, for instance, the trial of uh, former police officer Derek Chauvin in uh, Minnesota uh, to see, you know, what's going to happen. Man, rioting, looting, it was starting up last night. Apparently uh, somewhere in, um, I forget the name, Brooklyn something, I can't remember. Anyway, it's it's a town in in Minnesota. I, I... 
it has the name Brooklyn, and I can't remember the, the full name. It, I apologize. But um, apparently a suspect was shot. He happened to be black. And, uh, boy, the, the rioters are ready to go. They're not even going to wait for whatever the verdict is on Chauvin. <sighs> not good. And that kind of lawlessness is bad. But you know what's bad also? When government refuses to abide by the law. Something that... Uh, that Robert Wright points out is he says, I doubt many traditionally legit businesses are yet on the cusp of deciding that the rule of law has degraded to the point that they should start to compete violently instead of on price and quality. They've always tried to leverage the regulatory state to their competitive advantage instead. But he says, what's new is the rapid growth of private security services, which surged by $3 billion in 2020, and it's up 50% since 2011. And it's also expected to continue to grow at 5% per year for the foreseeable future. Apparently, many corporations do not think the government can or will protect them from physical threats like looting, which caused an unprecedented scale and scope of property insurance losses last year. But he says even worse for economic performance would be an erosion in the widespread expectation that regulations and taxes will be applied consistently according to the rule of law. The deadweight losses that regulations and taxes both impose in nations that respect the rule of law is substantial, but it's still nothing compared to the losses suffered in countries where the rule of law has degraded to the point of arbitrary rule. For instance, after the rule of law degenerated in Argentina in the early 20th century, it's dropped from being the ninth richest nation in the world to an economically volatile has-been. His point is we cannot allow the same to occur here. That's certainly not a call for bigger government, but rather better government that places the rule of law above ideology. Without assurances that they can keep most of the wealth they create, innovators will find other places to live or other things to do, and with or without innovation, the economy will stagnate. I really like Robert E. Wright's take on, well, actually just about everything I've read that he's written, but... I thought this was especially appropriate given what we are facing right now. Interestingly enough, though, have you noticed since, uh, for instance, the new administration came in back in January, politicians everywhere all have a plan for us. Well, you know, we have the plan. We're going to fix everything for you. Of course, all the fixes seem to enhance their power, at least their grasp on power, and seem to corral us more decisively into a, a, an area where we're a little more confined, but we're supposedly supposed to feel safe. I know your kennel is small, but, you know, you're going to be fed every day, and we'll take you for a walk twice a day, so please don't complain. After all, we're doing this for you. I was happy to see over the weekend that uh, Barry Brownstein had uh, republished or reshared an article he wrote back in 2016, We the People Don't Need a President's Plan. And I think it was just as true then as it is today. Um, so he's going to be referencing the 2016 election, but I want you to, to put it into the context of has anything really changed today in terms of how politicians want to come in and save us by essentially maintaining or, or gaining control over us. Back in 2016, Barry Brownstein wrote, Hillary Clinton has a plan. Now, he says, I live in a battleground state, so Clinton shared her plan with me in commercials over and over and over again through Saturday morning, uh, Saturday afternoon, rather, college football. Clinton's plan is to spend more taxpayer money. 
This sounds pretty consistent, right? I can't think of very many politicians that wouldn't fit that bill today. Her spending initiatives include free college tuition for students and families making under $125,000 a year, universal preschool, and subsidized child care. He says delegated authority to the president is quite limited in the Constitution. But no matter, in our increasingly post-constitutional America, candidates, the media, and a majority of the public seem to believe that the president has powers far beyond those given by the Constitution. Do you remember Bill Clinton claiming his plan was building a bridge to the future? Well, building plans are de rigueur for candidates. We've come to believe the president has a problem solver's job to fix a whole host of domestic and foreign issues. Hillary tells us she's fighting for us. Since she's fighting for us, shouldn't we be glad she has a plan? And here, Barry Brownstein goes into this remarkable civics lesson. I needed this. Maybe you'll find this as refreshing as, as I did. He reminds us about what we the people means. Think about the preamble to the Constitution, which famously says, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. But he says, what does we the people mean? And there's a link in here to an interview with law professor Randy Barnett, who addresses that question as he talks about his important book, Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People. He explains that today, we the people is commonly interpreted as a collective of people who can vote their preferences into law by majority rule and then implement their will against the will of individuals whose rights are ignored. I know, that one rings really true, right? When judges rule laws as unconstitutional, they are seen as the problem because they get in the way of the will of the people. Brownstein says more and more Americans want to be taken care of by government. They want wealth to be redistributed by government, too. They believe all that's needed to expand the role of government is a vote. Now, the framers of the Constitution understood democracy is no guarantee against liberty being usurped. In Federalist Paper Number 10, James Madison wrote, Measures are too often decided not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority. Madison and other framers of the Constitution had something very different in mind than being subjected to rule by an overbearing majority. Barnett looks to the Declaration of Independence as an essential document by which we can better understand the Constitution. He says an alternative reading of we the people is we the people as individuals, each of whom are endowed with the individual rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I like that. Government's role is then to secure these rights. And Barnett points out that the Founding Fathers believed that first comes the pre-existing and inalienable rights, then comes government. Now, you don't have to look far to find support for Barnett's position. James Wilson was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was one of the six original justices appointed by Washington to the Supreme Court. Here, quoted by historian Brian McClanahan in the Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, Wilson explains what we the people of the United States means. Quote, We the people, it is announced in their name, it is clothed with their authority, from whom all power originated and ultimately belong. Magna Carta is the grant of a king. This constitution is the act of the people, and what they have not expressly granted, they have retained. End quote. 
Now, Wilson was no outlier in his interpretation of the Constitution. James Madison was the chief architect of the Constitution, and in Federalist Paper number 45, he puts it very clearly, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. And here Barry Brownstein asks, if the powers allocated to the federal government are few and defined, how could the president have a plan other than to defend the liberty of the people? We're going to continue this civics lesson, just the other side of our commercial break. Again, I would ask you, please go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Pay close attention to the sponsors. Show them some love. Send them a message. Tell them you heard their message here. And do business with them if you're so inclined. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I hope you are finding uh, this article that I'm sharing with you from Barry Brownstein. We the people don't need a president's plan. I hope it's a shot in the arm for your confidence that, yes, you and I better understand what we need to know to run our lives. We don't need some politician, be it a president, a governor, or a city council member, a mayor, to come riding to our rescue and and impose a solution on all of us for our own good. And so we've got a little bit of a civics lesson going on here. And, And again, this article was written back in 2016, October of 2016 to be exact. So this was in the heat of the 2016 election. But everything that Barry Brownstein is outlining here rings true. In fact, it rings more true today even than it did then, given the way things have been going over the last year with the COVID response, the implementation of a state of pandemic, and all of the emergency powers being sought and being exercised in contravention to the limits on legitimate government. Someone reminded me the other day that, uh, you know, when you read 1984 by Orwell, Something that really jumps out at you is um, he mentions over and over again how, you know, we had always been at war with East Asia. We've always been at war with Eurasia. Remember, they always were at war. It was with one or the other, but there was a constant state of war, therefore a constant state of emergency, therefore justification for government to always, always, always be able to call the shots no matter what. It translates very well into all those who are pushing for we're going to be in a constant state of pandemic from here on out. And the power grab that's going on right now is very real, as opposed to the fictional, you know, power that was being wielded over the subjects of Oceania in 1984. Let's go back to Barry's essay. He talks about how rights are retained by the people. Let's delve into that a bit more. Barry asks, so how do we keep government to a few and defined powers? Kind of like uh, James Madison referred to in Federalist Paper 45. Some founding fathers wanted a Bill of Rights as a bulwark against government. Others, including Alexander Hamilton, feared government would grow if the rights of government were itemized. In Federalist Paper number 84, Hamilton argues against the Bill of Rights being incorporated into the Constitution. Quote, they would contain various exceptions to powers which are not granted and on this very account would afford a colorable pretext to claim more than were granted. For why declare that things shall not be done which there is no power to do? Why, for instance, should it be said that the liberty of the press shall not be restrained when no power is given by which restrictions may be imposed? End quote. Interesting. 
In other words, Barry says, as James Wilson puts it, a Bill of Rights annexed to a Constitution is an enumeration of the powers reserved. If we attempt an enumeration, everything that is not enumerated is presumed to be given. Imperfect enumeration of powers would imply the government has powers it does not have. Now, there was no argument about the rights retained by the people. The argument was how to secure them. Madison's solution to those objections was the Ninth Amendment. Placed in its historical context, the powerfully simple language of the Ninth Amendment is clear and unambiguous. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. But what Madison couldn't have anticipated is that the courts would virtually ignore the vital Ninth Amendment, citing it in only a few cases in the course of American history. Ignoring the vital Ninth Amendment has helped allow government to expand unchecked. Randy Barnett's edited volume, The Rights Retained by the People, is an essential guide to the Ninth Amendment. Let's talk about the powers of the president. The powers granted to government are few and defined. Now, the Constitution grants the president only a few of those limited powers and certainly no power to propose grand plans. The Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, uh, Brian McClanahan writes, quote, The framers did not consider the president to be the chief legislator. He could not propose legislation, and his primary domestic responsibility was to execute the laws and carry the will of the legislature into effect. End quote. So limited were the powers of the president, says Barry Brownstein, that Charles Pickney, founding father and signer of the U.S. Constitution, argued against the impeachment clause in the Constitution on the grounds that the president's powers would be so circumcised by the Constitution that presidential abuse would be impossible. I'm sorry. I'm just having a little moment of grief for... Uh, I'm sure he... I'm, I'm sure it would have been nice had it worked out that way, but looking at how things are going right now, nope. The president seems unrestrained. And and it's not just President Biden. Republican presidents have done the same thing. Wow, with this pen and with this piece of paper, I'm going to rule the world and make these plans that will solve everybody's problems. Barry Brownstein asks, if the president is not to make plans for us, then what? He says, in my fee, Foundation for Economic Education essay, there is no such thing as a political problem solver. He says, I put it this way, every day ordinary citizens and entrepreneurs pursue opportunities. No one controls the myriad decentralized decisions and actions that along the way solve problems. We don't need problem solvers to tell us the winning plan. We need planners and problem solvers to stay out of our way. In reality, he said, Clinton's plan is not the problem. Her plan to expand government only reflects the hearts and minds of American people who are ignorant of and no longer value our great founding principles. The analysis in this essay, he says, would be considered irrelevant by many Americans who say, well, the Constitution has to be interpreted in the light of what society needs today. As for the rest of us, Barnett's words, as long as the Constitution has not been repealed, we could appeal to restore it. We're going to have to figure out how to keep the flame of liberty alive and how to keep the Constitution alive, at least in our thoughts, until we have a change in circumstances. And here Barry Brownstein says the change in circumstances will begin when we change our minds about the role of government. When we no longer believe we need a president's plan, candidates will stop offering them. We are the problem, and we are the solution. Fantastic stuff here. You'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Strongly recommend you check it out. I often recommend that... uh, 
we unplug from the matrix, particularly the mainstream mo- me- <laughs> the mainstream media news matrix. And, and the reason I do this is not because I need a bunch of people who are ignorant of what's going on so they'll more eagerly hang on whatever it is I'm telling them. And believe me, I need them to be easy to buffalo. No. My goal, just in case you've missed it, is I want to promote free thinking. I call it wrong think. That's a tongue-in-cheek you know, nod to Orwell. And that's, but that's the way it's being treated today. You stray from what the approved narrative is. You are engaging in wrong think. You are guilty of thought crime. And uh, frankly, it's an honor to be considered you know, guilty of thought crime in this day and age. But so much of what is being fed to us by our mainstream media is incomplete, sometimes deliberately slanted to mislead us in a direction, even if it's just by a few degrees, you don't have to be a few degree, too many degrees off to end up at a far different destination than you would have had with a more true course and with a more correct bearing. Nowhere have I seen this more apparently than in the reporting on George Floyd's death last summer and the riots and destruction that followed that. In fact, I'm going to say something here that I hope people won't misconstrue, but um, from my vantage point as, as a commentator who is trying to promote seeking truth, ascertaining the facts, and then, you know, to the best of your ability, acting upon that truth. I think that our mainstream media is, uh, is actually uh, every bit the enemy to the people as power-hungry politicians and their uh, enabling opportunist, uh, you know, bureaucrats and so forth, the hangers-on, the lobbyists and so forth. I don't say that lightly. To me, that's a, it's an ugly truth, but I think it's a truth that needs to be spoken. And, and the, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former uh, Minneapolis police officer, you know, who was uh, videotaped kneeling on George Floyd, I mean, it's, it is being treated as well. You know, they better find him guilty or, in the words of uh, the protesters who've taken a little break for the cold weather, you know, these cities are going to burn. We're going to burn it all down. By the way, for the record, they're not even waiting until this uh, verdict comes out. They were looking for reasons to riot uh, last night, and I believe we'll probably continue on. But they're they're poised on the idea of there's this terrible injustice that's been done. A racist white cop graphically knelt on the neck of a black man and deliberately killed him with cameras running, with people filming the whole thing and protesting. He killed him anyways just because he could, just because of his white privilege. Okay, so that's the media narrative. If you are interested in actual, factual coverage, not the the sanitized, inclusive, and, uh, you know, uh, rainbow prescription glasses version of, uh, of what the media is reporting, I strongly recommend you check out a website called LegalInsurrection.com. They have uh, reported on things, and I mean, it's, this is not some, you know, Alex Jones-sponsored site. They're very thorough in the way that they report things from the courtroom. And I will tell you from experience, when you sit in the courtroom or when you actually have a place in the courtroom, you get to hear what the jurors are hearing. What the media reports usually is spun to fit its preferred narrative. I saw this in the Bundy trial. It's certainly happening in Derek Chauvin's trial. I have a link to legal insurrection and particularly to the Derek Chauvin trial. I'll just say this. The coverage is remarkable. You look at it yourself and you can make up your own mind. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm going to delve into a topic here that uh, for some people is going to be extremely relevant, and for others, it's not yet. I want to talk about America's shortage of affordable housing. This is something that kind of hit home for me in a big way just about a week ago. Uh, my wife and I, we are renters, and the area where we live is is experiencing incredible growth. Huge influx of people coming in. There is construction going on everywhere. Not just individual houses, but high-density housing is going in. It's it's remarkable. You know, to say that there is a boom and there is high demand for real estate would be a huge, huge understatement. And so the, the values of the homes are rising, you know, in direct relation to the demand. When there's a shortage of supply, prices go up because things become more scarce, and that is exactly what we see happening. But this also has kind of a trickle-down effect to people who are renting, and we happen to be renting at this time. Now, we've, uh, we've been very happy where we are. We, we really love our neighborhood. We actually we love the home that we've been renting. It's sufficiently spacious and warm and cheery, and just uh, it's, it's really been a great experience. And the, the property management company from which we're renting has uh, been very good to keep us at our rental or at our, at our payment, uh, you know, at a, at a very, I, I think, reasonable level. It was much higher than what we were paying before, you know, in terms of our house payment before we moved here. But um, it's, it's reasonable for where it is and, and for, for where we live. So we got noticed that, uh, hey, as of uh, June, your rent is going to have to go up. And so, you know, it's time to renegotiate your lease and, you know, you need to decide if this is what you're willing to do. Now, for some people, this wouldn't be a really big deal, but a 20% jump in rent, we can manage it, but it's like, whoa, that's a, that's a body blow right there. We, we felt that knocked the wind out of us. And I know there are other people looking around and going, I can't find rentals that I can afford. People who are shopping for homes are like, oh my word, you know, things that we thought were, uh, you know, wow. You know, this $350,000, $375,000 home, that's, that's pretty high. Yeah, well, that was, uh, that was just a few years ago. Now, you know, they're pushing up on $700,000. And this is, again, a product of demand. It's not because people are being greedy. It's because the demand is high enough that uh, the, the prices reflect how scarce housing is becoming, or at least affordable housing. Well, there's an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. This was published on Saturday. It's by Dustin Romney, no relation to Mitt that I know of, how deregulating real estate markets can solve America's shortage of affordable housing. In fact, he says the deregulation of real estate markets doesn't just make economic sense. It's also a moral imperative. Dustin Romney says in the early 20th century, known as the Progressive Era, the United States embarked on a spree of regulatory projects. One such project was airline regulation, which led to the creation of the Civil Aeronautics Board, or CAB. The CAB controlled entry into the market, air routes, and airfares. Fortunately, realizing the harmful consequences of CAB's control over the market, President Jimmy Carter signed the Airline Deregulation Act, opened up the market entry, air routes, and prices to competition rather than managing them by decree. And airline deregulation was an enormous success. Today, air travel is affordable enough to be accessible to the middle class, even the relatively poor. And I know some snobby people are like, I know, it's like riding a Greyhound bus in the sky. Oh, stop it. Go treat yourself to some caviar and 
Let us travel in peace. Another regulatory project of the Progressive Era was to regulate telecommunications, but once again, it became clear that too much regulation was a bad thing. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 deregulated the industry. And once again, the effects were palpable and positive. Even the poorest among us can now afford a smartphone and Internet access. Unfortunately, he says many progressive era regulatory regimes remain and are far more uh, in far more labyrinthian form than originally crafted. Among them, land use regulation calls out for attention. Originally sold as a mechanism for nuisance prevention, zoning laws were quickly adapted to tackle a host of perceived ills. And today, the dominant theme of land use regulation has little to do with nu- nuisance protection and focuses almost exclusively on the character of the neighborhood, some, sometimes to preserve it and sometimes to change it. He says, take, for example, the 230-page zoning ordinance in the town of Queen Creek, Arizona, where he says he's currently navigating the permitting process to build a home. It includes no less than 30 different zoning designations, including such arcane distinctions as residential zones where the minimum lot size may be 7,000 square feet or 9,000 square feet. If many people bothered to peruse their local zoning ordinance, they might be surprised to learn that 7,000 square foot lots were such a threat to 9,000 square foot lots. Setting aside the arbitrariness of most zoning distinctions... He says the fundamental pathology of land use regulation is the belief that a sufficiently intelligent group of regulators can effectively plan real estate markets. But this, of course, is the fundamental pathology of socialism itself. In his much-needed book, Order Without Design, longtime urban planner Alain Bertaud documents and laments the mindset held by the vast majority of urban planners. Given enough control, planners can successfully create, quote, livable and sustainable city. But Bertad documents what for documents for real estate markets what reformers learned long ago in airline and telecommunications markets, and what most of the world learned about socialism, namely central planning doesn't work. Bertad writes: Planners believe in norms. They happily regulate minimum lot sizes, minimum uh, dwelling floor sizes, maximum heights of buildings, minimum street widths, and so forth. However, when trying to enforce these regulations, they often run into the harsh reality of land prices. What should be done when many households cannot afford the minimum regulatory lot size because of high land prices? Planners see land prices as the main obstacle to affordability. If a government were to replace land markets with a design based on norms, the major obstacle would be house to the major obstacle to housing affordability and to good planning in general would be solved. Additionally, land could be allocated in sufficient quantity to low, middle, and high-income housing on a map. To this day, this is the essence of most master plans. This is the urban planner's dream. End quote. Now, Mr. Romney goes on to say, Bertaud goes on to recount the disastrous Chinese and Soviet experiments with socializing land. Those two nations lived the urban planner's dream of being able to allocate and control land based solely on their designs without the pesky interference of prices. And we all know the results. Now, there's much more to this article. I'm going to leave it to you to discover, but I want to get to the part about why it's a moral imperative to deregulate the real estate markets. And in this case, uh, Dustin Romney says the deregulation of real estate markets doesn't just make economic sense. It's also a moral imperative. He says, think of it. It's illegal for me to build a small additional home on my four-acre lot for my aging mother. If I defied the government in this respect for long enough, 
they would eventually send armed policemen to arrest me for building a house on my own property. Aside from such weighty restrictions, he says land use regulation is replete with arbitrary rules governing harmless activity from light commercial to aesthetics. If the urban pathology of land use regulation is a misguided belief in urban planners' ability to coordinate real estate markets, the moral pathology is the troubling belief, both because of its substance and breathless acceptance, that urban planners have a right to prohibit land uses that have no meaningful effect on others' enjoyment of their property. It may be said that the essence of living a moral life is to have the courage to stand up to the unwarranted use of force and the restraint to resist using it when others are doing something we don't like. By that standard, modern land use regulation is a moral catastrophe. When the constitutionality of zoning laws was still being debated, those were the days, the Texas Supreme Court, in striking down an early zoning ordinance, wrote, quote, It would be tyranny to say to a poor man who happens to own a lot within a residence district of palatial structures and his title subject to no servitude that he could not erect an humble home upon it suited to his means or that any residence he might erect must equal in grandeur those about it. Under his constitutional rights, he could erect such a structure as he pleased so long as it was not hazardous to others. Dustin Romney says, for the sake of economics and the moral right to property, the Zoning Deregulation Act of 20-whatever is waiting. Interesting take. It's an article well worth uh, worth your time. Again, uh, if you want to read it in its entirety, I have it linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. As an added bonus, I'm going to note that uh, my hometown of Salt Lake City is currently the hottest job market in the nation. And I'm going to include an article from John Miltimore as he connects the dots as to why that is and how it has everything to do with people choosing freedom over lockdowns. It's a terrific piece, and um, it's it's very interesting. You know, there, there really is. There is there is plenty of opportunity here. And, and one of the interesting things that we're seeing right now, do you know that uh, the bailouts, yeah, the stimulus checks, in many ways are actually hurting small businesses who are looking for people to hire but it's hard to convince people hey come work for a living when they can sit home and wait for a check with their name on it to arrive i don't know something to be said about incentives maybe we should look into that a little more closely this is the brian hyde show